from Mark chapter 1, verses 32 to 39. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Well, if you weren't feeling depressed before, (laughs) you are now. But the sadness is that that is the world that you and I live in. That is the culture that we exist in. That we are surrounded by people who are always connected, but increasingly relationally impoverished. That we might be aware of what's happening thousands of miles away from us, but we are completely unaware of what is happening right around us or indeed what's happening within us. What we want to look at um, this evening is the rhythm of life that Jesus lived and the rhythm of life that we believe he wants us to live. And that rhythm is different to the rhythm around us all the time. It's different to the rhythm that's dictated to us by our culture. It's different, perhaps, to the rhythm that's dictated to us by the places where we work or the places where we stay. It's a different rhythm. A week last Thursday, just after the red alert snow warning of death by snow apocalypse had passed at 10 a.m. in the morning, Um, I walked into work. We um, asked staff to still come into work if they could make it safely, and most of us did. The snow was deep. It was very, very cold. Uh, There were no buses at all. The buses were unable um, to to run. Um, That amazing Lothian bus driver, uh, that woman bus driver, was um, milking social media for all she could get on that incredible piece of driving where she swerved. Uh, to avoid that car on on her side of the road. Um, In the shops, uh, there was no bread and no milk. Uh, The snow apocalypse had had come to Stockbridge. There were no olives in Waitrose. Um, And things were getting really, really serious. Um, And as I walked up through the new town, I became aware of this phenomenon because there were other people going to work. They were wrapped up in scarves and hats and, and all sorts of stuff. But coming towards me, there was a group of people, men and women, dressed differently. Well, they were dressed differently to me, and they were dressed differently to those of us who were heading into work. They were coming the opposite direction, and they were wearing different clothes. Without exception, the people who were coming towards me had trainers on. They had lycra trousers with various patterns on of different shades and shapes. One or two of them had headbands and they were either wearing rab jackets or North Face jackets. 
And as they strode towards me with a look of serious intent and fierce determination on their faces, they were all carrying water bottles. And I thought, who are these people? Are they the Sixth Emergency Service? Are they the sort of Newtown Snow Brigade who've come out to help people? No. They were all headed for one place. They were all headed for yoga. <laughs> they were all headed for the yoga class. And that's why they were dressed in the way that they were dressed. And even a foot of snow was not going to put them off was not going to deter them from going to their yoga class and doing whatever they did in their yoga class. More and more people in the UK increasingly are going to yoga. And also in society in general, they're practicing what's called mindfulness. It's even on the curriculum in some schools that pupils now will deliberately be asked to put aside time just to think and to be mindful. It's not a bad thing, it's probably quite a good thing. But it speaks of something very deep in our society, very deep in our culture, because we are in a society which is desperate, desperate, paradoxically, of the need to slow down. We can go further, we can go faster than any previous generation, but we're no happier and neither are we more peaceful. We are perhaps the most anxious and stressed out generation that there has ever been. Continuously connected, but increasingly relationally impoverished and increasingly lonely. It's not a particularly new phenomenon. Um, in the 19th century, when the Europeans arrived on the island of Hawaii, uh, the locals gave them a certain name, Hayoli. H-A-O-L-E. And one local Hawaiian was asked once, what does the word Hayoli mean? He said, it literally means no breath. And they said, well, why was that the name that you gave to the, the Westerners who came to Hawaii? Why did you call them Hayoli? And the Hawaiian said this, the settlers were always in a hurry to build plantations, to build harbours, to build ranches, and they always seemed out of breath. And again, I think that is a very accurate description of our society. If you look at how people travel, if you think about how people are around you, perhaps on Princess Street, wherever you go to school or college or work, often around you the people will be out of breath. Out of breath perhaps physically, but more importantly, they'll be out of breath emotionally, out of breath psychologically, or out of breath spiritually. Moving faster, traveling further, with the ability to go further and faster than any previous generation, but actually no nearer themselves, and indeed ending up further away. Now, it strikes me that if you look at the life of Jesus, there are many things that hit you about how different his life was. But if you look at the life of Jesus again and again and again, one of the things that characterized him was a certain poise. 
for all the demands of other people, for all the expectations of other people, for all the fact that he was on a mission from God, he never seemed hassled. And he never seemed hurried. Jesus seemingly, obviously the pace of life was slower. He was living and working in an agrarian culture in the Middle East, in Palestine 2,000 years ago. It's a very different world to the world that you and I live in. But if you look at the life of Jesus, he never seemed out of breath. Even though he accomplished so much, even though he did more perhaps than any human being who's ever lived, he never seemed out of breath and he always seemed to be in control no matter what was going on around him. In the accounts of the life of Jesus according to John, the fourth gospel, Jesus again and again refers to what he describes as the hour. So his mother, Mary, asks him uh, to help out at a wedding when uh, they've run out of wine. And his response is to say, my hour has not yet come. He's conscious, it appears, of living and working to somebody else's agenda and somebody else's timing, that of his heavenly father. Elsewhere in John chapter 5, verse 19, he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only do what I see the Father doing. And that knowledge of what he saw the Father doing and therefore what he was being called to do each and every day guided him, sustained him, and gave him that pace of life. So what's the clue to living life to that different rhythm? Living life, as it were, to the beat of a different drum. Not the drums of the people around us. Not the drums of our culture and our society that is all about more and faster and further. But actually living life at a different pace. In a different way. Seeing what the Father is doing and then joining in with that. Well, I think the clue of how Jesus lived that sort of life came at the start of his public ministry in Mark's Gospel, that reading that was read for us a few moments ago. If you want to turn back to it, to Mark chapter 1, verses 32 to 39. And it comes ironically in Mark's Gospel, which is compared to the other three, it's been described as the high-speed Gospel. It, if you like, it's the tabloid Gospel, because immediately, and then, and this, and then that, and then this, and immediately then, and that, that, and it's all... And everything's compressed and very sort of dynamic and going. And right at the start, Jesus slows down. And the rest of the gospel reads, boom, 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 boom. And the word immediately comes again and again, at once, at once, at once, at once, at once. But at the start of his public ministry, Jesus gives a signal as to how he lives life differently. And he puts this early marker down. Following his baptism and temptation, Jesus moves to a place called Capernaum and he begins to call his first followers, Andrew, Simon, James and John. He arrives, we're told, in Capernaum in Mark chapter 1 and verse 21. And we're told that they went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. That's where it begins for Jesus. 
It begins at the stuff that we looked at last Sunday, with having a regular rhythm of a Sabbath. Jesus put aside a Sabbath. Jesus observed a Sabbath. Even though Jesus transformed the Sabbath and said that Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath, he kept Sabbath. Again and again, we read of Jesus going into the synagogue. Imagine what it was like for Jesus going into the synagogue every Sabbath, hearing other people preach. Imagine what that must have been like for Jesus. As week after week, he listened to someone like me preach, and he sat somewhere back like where you are, and he went, missed the point again, just like you are tonight. Imagine what that was like for Jesus going into the synagogue, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, for 33 years. But he did it. Because he knew it was the rhythm of his father, who'd created the world in six days and then rested. And he knew that it was right to keep the Sabbath holy. Yes, to enjoy it and to and to live it to the full, but to stop doing the other things that he was doing and to rest from being a, a carpenter and a craftsman and an artisan woodworker and to stop work and to go to the synagogue. Jesus went to the synagogue and he observed Sabbath, where in the words of Matthew Sleeth, Sabbath is a time to transition from human doings to human beings. <laughs> from human doings to human beings. That's what this evening is about. That's why we keep Sabbath on a Sunday, where we deliberately step aside from what's happening in the rest of the week, and we come into a building like this, and we do things in a building like this that we do not do for the rest of the week, because we're keeping Sabbath. Yes, we live literally in the presence of God all the time, but we decide on one day a week to deliberately set aside time so that we might come and consciously spend time in the presence of God. Rick Warren, who leads Saddleback Church in California, he has this little short sort of ditty that he says, devote daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. Devote daily, Withdraw weekly and abandon annually. Devote daily. Spend some time with Jesus consciously each day. Withdraw weekly. Come into a plate like this once a week and spend time worshipping, listening, praying, reflecting. And then actually abandon annually. Once a year, take some time out to reflect on your life and on your relationship with God. But things happen around Jesus. He goes into the synagogue Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. He was so frustrated with what was being taught and preached that he actually stood up and started to preach and teach himself. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Just then a man in their synagogue who was demonized cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? If you come to destroy us, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. The evil spirit inside this man knew who Jesus was, called him out on it, challenged him. And Jesus addresses an evil spirit as if he's talking to a puppy or a naughty child. 
be quiet. Come out. There's no hysteronics. There's no turning up the worship music louder. There's no let's just hold that extra chord before we pray for the person. There's no building up of the emotion. Jesus simply says, be quiet. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Not surprisingly, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. He's tired after preaching and teaching and carrying out an exorcism. As soon as they leave the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. It's great, isn't it? It tells you something about the culture and society. You know, it's no sort of Mother's Day. Well, you, you just had a fever, you've been sick. No, you've got to wait on us now, because you're a woman and we're men, and therefore that's what happens in this culture. And she waits on the disciples and Jesus. But word gets around in Capernaum. And that evening after sunset, because they're keeping the Sabbath, they can't come on the Sabbath. After sunset, when the sun goes down, when the next day begins, and that's a clue to observing Sabbath. In the Jewish calendar, the day begins the night before, not first thing in the morning. So maybe that is a different way to keep Sabbath from the night before, from sunset the night before. When sunset happens, when the next day begins, they bring all the sick, they bring all the people who are afflicted with evil spirits, and they bring them to Jesus, and he begins to heal them. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And again, there's no hysteronics. It's just part of Jesus' ministry. He deals with evil spirits and just gets rid of them. But what happens next is significant. The whole town gathers at the door. Maybe some of them are so desperate to be around Jesus that they stay camped around the door. Maybe some of them do go back to their homes. Capernaum wouldn't have been a very big town or village at this time. It wasn't like Edinburgh. It was a small village like in the Borders or Fife. And people maybe stay around the town or maybe they stay around the home of Simon Peter. But what Jesus does next is significant. Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Now, on one level, the text simply sets his desire to be alone and pray against the desire of the villagers and disciples to find Jesus and experience another display of his power. We're told... Jesus gets up while it's still dark, i.e. before everybody else has got up, because there's no electric lights, there's no alarms on their iPhones. You wake up when the sun rises. You go to bed when the sun sets. 
when the sun rises and when the sun sets dictates when the day begins and when the day ends. Jesus gets up before the sun has risen and he goes to a solitary place, the same word that is translated elsewhere by desert. So he goes into the desert, he goes into the wilderness to a solitary place and he starts to pray. The sun comes up. It's a new day dawning, somebody once said. And Simon and Andrew and James and John wake up. And perhaps as the sun rises, they start to see people coming back to the house. Or perhaps they look outside the house and they see the people who haven't gone back to their own houses and they're camped around the house people who are still sick and people who have got with them those who are afflicted with evil spirits. And they look for Jesus. And they can't find Jesus. Because Jesus isn't there. And so they begin to search. And they begin to look. And they begin to hunt. And they begin to root. And they start to panic. Because the people are around the town and around the house for one reason and one reason only, to meet Jesus. And Jesus has gone AWOL. Jesus has gone missing. Jesus has left them. There are people sick, there are people who are demonized, and James and John and Simon and Andrew haven't got a clue to do what to do. And they start to look and they start to search and they carry on searching and they carry on looking and the panic starts to rise and they think, what are we going to do? We can't pray for people. He hasn't taught us how yet. We can't pray for people. He hasn't given us the Holy Spirit. We haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit yet. We haven't heard about all that stuff because we haven't, anyway. Um, and they start to panic. And they start to search and they begin to look and they start to hunt. They say, we're told, that everybody is looking for you, Simon says to Jesus when eventually he finds him. And the Greek word is katadoikain, and it implies to hunt or track down, often in a hostile sense. That's what the disciples are doing. They're hunting and tracking down Jesus in a slightly hostile sense. They want to find him. And when they find him, Simon goes to them and they say, everyone is looking for you. I.e., we're looking for you. Because we don't know what to do. And why have you bunked off? Why have you gone AWOL? Why have you left us around the house? Why have you left us when everybody else is here? And the sense is that by the time... Simon, Andrew, James and John find Jesus, he's been praying for some time. The tense of the word that's translated is that by the time they find Jesus, he's been praying for quite a while. This is no brief five minutes of prayer. This is no perfunctory, I'll fit in my quiet time before the rest of the day starts. Jesus has been praying for quite a long time. When suddenly the disciples interrupt him and say, everyone is looking for you. This is God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, who for the whole of eternity up to this point has existed in perfect relationship with his heavenly Father. But he finds the need to go and spend time with his Father at the start of every single day. 
if Jesus needed to do that, I think you and I need to do that too. Because our relationship with the Father probably isn't as close as that that Jesus had. And if Jesus had to spend time each day with his heavenly Father, then probably you and I need to do that on a regular basis. Perhaps in a disciplined way. Perhaps in an accountable <coughs> way. It's not easy. It doesn't come naturally to most of us. It does to some people. But most of us have, if we're honest, to get into a rhythm and discipline of trying to do it every single day and most of us will fail miserably. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Jesus put aside time to spend time with his father and what he did in sharing who he was with his father and allowing his father to share who he was was as it were get the father's agenda for that day if he only does what he sees the father doing when does he see what the father is doing he sees what the father is doing and what the father wants to do when he spends time alone with his father he gets his father's priorities. He gets his father's values. He gets how his father sees people. So that when Jesus goes into the rest of the day, he sees people as his father sees them. He lives life according to his father's priority. He lives life according to his father's values because he spent time with his father. And he can then do what he sees the Father doing because he's seen what the Father wants to do. And that makes sense of the answer that Jesus gives to his disciples. Let us go somewhere else, he says. And again, you can imagine the disciples going, what? There's, we've just come from Capernaum. There's a whole town gathered round the house and you're saying we should leave. You're saying we should go to the next village, the nearby village, so that you can preach there because that's what... It doesn't make sense. But you see, sometimes the priorities of God and the priorities of the kingdom and the timing of God are different to yours and mine and to those of our culture and our society. Jesus leaves people ill, and he leaves people demonized in Capernaum in order to go to the nearby villages so that he may preach there also. Now, some people think, oh, yeah, but hang on, Jesus came back to Capernaum. So he sort of cleared it up later. Well, he did go back to Capernaum, but we're not told that he healed everybody. We're not told that he delivered everybody of an evil spirit. There were still people who were ill when Jesus died on the cross in Palestine. There were still people afflicted with evil spirits when Jesus was raised from the dead in Palestine. Why did Jesus do that? Because Jesus knew what the Father wanted him to do. And that gave him a different set of priorities. It strikes me again and again that one of the reasons for the poise that Jesus has and the peace that Jesus has and the pace that Jesus lives his life at 
is that he knows exactly what the Father wants him to do at every single hour of every single day. And therefore he lives to a different agenda. He walks to the beat of a different drum. And he is therefore utterly secure in himself. Utterly secure in himself. He knows who he is. He knows what the Father has called him to do. And he also knows what the Father has called him not to do. In John chapter 13, on what is called Maundy Thursday, we're told Jesus, knowing that he had come from heaven and knowing that he was returning to heaven, took a towel and a bowl and washed the feet of his disciples. It's striking that in Gethsemane, just before he is arrested and put to death, in a very similar way that happens at the temptation, the thing that is challenged is the identity of Jesus. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. If he is the Son of God, he will come down from the cross. What's challenged is Jesus' identity. And the thing that sustains him is that apart from that time when he refutes and rebukes the devil in the wilderness, but also that time in the Garden of Gethsemane when he begins perhaps for the only time to doubt the Father's plan. Apart from that, he knows who he is. A woman who's a Christian with the amazing name of Wanda Nash. Uh, she uh, was a Christian and is the UK chair of the International Stress Management Association. She observed this about Jesus. She says, Jesus taught and practiced self-awareness. He never denied the expectations of others, but he very seldom reproved them for having them. But he did not collude with them. And he resisted the expectations of others. And she concludes with these words. Jesus responded rather than reacted to whatever happened. His ability to respond, his response ability, his ability to respond was strong. And that's quite a striking thought that Jesus responded rather than reacted What's the difference? I think if you respond, you are still responsible for your actions and your feelings and your emotions. If you react, you are reacting to how that other person is acting. And there's a degree to which they make you feel and think and do things perhaps that you do not want to do or think or feel. There's a difference between reacting and responding. And Wanda Nash says that Jesus responded rather than reacted. And I think again and again, if you think about the life of Jesus, and it's always dangerous for us to try and replicate Jesus because we're not Jesus. He had very clear boundaries, what are called boundaries. 
Some of you know lots about this, but for some of you, this will be new, this idea of boundaries. And Jesus was able to keep those boundaries. He knew who he was, and he knew who he wasn't. He was compassionate, but he didn't allow other people's needs to dictate to him how he felt or how he responded. I could try and explain what boundaries are, but I wouldn't do it very well. We're going to sit for five minutes or so and just watch a video of uh, a guy called Henry Cloud, who's a psychologist and a Christian and a leadership coach. And just in five or six minutes, he explains what boundaries are. But as you watch, think about your own life and think about how this applies to you. So very simply, how are your boundaries? Are you allowing bad stuff in? that you should be keeping out? Are you allowing somebody else in your life perhaps to dictate how you feel? Are you letting their stuff become your stuff in a way that's detrimental to who you are? Because if you're not keeping those boundaries and keeping the bad stuff out, are you allowing just the good stuff in? Doesn't mean that you're not compassionate, doesn't mean that you're not empathic, doesn't mean that you don't feel, doesn't mean that you don't help, doesn't mean that you become a sort of robot. But at the end of the day, you have to take responsibility for your stuff, and they have to take responsibility for theirs, and own it, and don't let their stuff control you. So Jesus lived life in a different way, in a different rhythm, because he spent time with the Father, because he prioritized that, he put aside time at the start of each day, and that enabled him to live life differently. The question is, will you do that, and will I do that, Libby?